Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, during seminary, I worked at a church down in the Louisville area that was uh, just a, a, a deep blessing, a very formative time in my life. Uh, I was in my mid-20s. I was passionately trying to figure out how to become a pastor, and, um, but I was pretty rough around the edges. <laughs> Some of you might have known me back then. Uh, but, you know, I knew a lot of theology. I read a lot. I liked to talk. Uh, I had a lot of energy, you know, but... Uh, Sometimes I was a little, little prickly, and I had moved down there to marry Camille and go to seminary, and so I started working at this church pretty, pretty fresh. Like people didn't know me that well. I didn't have a lot of like background or whatever, but it, it was uh, just a really sweet, formative season because it, it blended two things that I think are so beautiful. It, it was it, my experience being kind of like, if you will if I could connect it to our, our teaching topic. Uh, under the authority of this church and being on staff at this church, it, it blended um, affirmation and also correction. Uh, I, I was, had only been there a couple months during which I got married and had my honeymoon and been gone for weeks. So I feel like I'd barely started, barely gotten anything done. And Jonah, the pastor, introduced me to someone. This is Josh. He's our new intern. He's doing an incredible job. And I was like, I am? Yeah, I was so insecure. Uh, it was just an affirming envir- environment where I felt like I could contribute. And, and, but what was made it so formative was that it was also a place of rebuke where like they loved me enough to say like, hey, stop doing that. Or you need to consider what you're, how you come across all these things. It was a place where I could not be okay, new in my marriage and be cared for and be allowed to contribute and participate. Like I wasn't put on the bench because I was struggling and it was just sweet. I just remember feeling so grateful to have a part to play. Uh, and because of that, I was willing to kind of, I was all in. I was all in serving the church. Like, Josh, brew coffee for this meeting. Clean up the vomit in the kids' room. Mop out the baptistry. You know, just like whatever, you know, just let me at it. I was happy to contribute because I felt like I belonged. I felt cared for. Uh, it, was, it was sweet. It was, a, it, was just a, it was a short season relative, you know, proportionally, but it's born disproportionate amount of fruit. But I've also had working environment that was basically the opposite, where I felt confused and wasn't sure where I stood and what I was supposed to be doing and why decisions were being made. And I'd get very sporadic feedback only when I had done something wrong, you know, so I was like afraid to misstep. You've probably been in situations like that. Uh, It's exhausting. You kind of shrivel up. You hunker down, try to like protect yourself. It's miserable. Uh, you know, I, I was shy about doing things and nervous how it would be received. And uh, I go into that because we see King Jesus today as the Lord, uh, the one with all authority. He tells us plainly that he's the king. And then he, he kind of, I think he gives us a compare and contrast with his authority, what kind of response makes sense, and, and the basis of his authority. And we contrast that with worldly authority. We've been in the Gospel of Mark since January, and the whole book is framed around this question, who is 
Jesus. This question in the middle of the book that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? That's right in the middle of chapter 8. And the answer that you and I give to the question, who do we say Jesus is, has huge implications for our lives. If we consider the message of Mark carefully as he intended under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus is presented in the gospel as Lord, Master, King, Messiah, and a particular kind of king who calls us to follow him, deny ourselves, to decidedly not live our truth, but instead live his truth with our lives. I've shared this quote before, but one commentator said it like this, a proper confession of Jesus involves a new understanding of discipleship. When believers confess who Jesus is, they also and inevitably confess what they must become. Jesus is not an objective datum like a rock under a microscope that can be observed and examined in supposed neutrality. The statement, you are the Christ or you are the Messiah, which is chapter 8, verse 29, imposes a claim on the one who says it. The Son of Man calls those who would know him to follow him. So to proclaim, to agree with Peter, you are the Messiah, you are the King, you are the Anointed One, means logically, according to what Mark is saying, that we become his apprentice, that we follow him. We allow him to step on our toes and his yes trump our yes. It's a profound thing. And it it flies in the face of a, a trend that can happen, I think, in Western churches where we agree with Jesus as the king like like an objective datum, <laughs> a point of data, uh, like the like the commentator said. Like, yes, I agree, you know, gravity makes us fall at nine point eight meters per second squared. Uh, we agree with a fact, but then do we live our lives in, rely, in light of that fact? If we confess Jesus is the Son of God, then we have to do something with his call to follow us. It would make no sense to say, yes, you are the King, you are the Son of God, you have all the authority, but I'm not going to do what you say. I'm not going to follow you or set up my life to become like you. Our text answers three questions. Who is Jesus? What's different about his authority or what's different than his authority versus worldly authority? And what is the natural response to his authority? And my hope for us today is that we see Jesus, see that Jesus, like the poor widow, has given everything for us and in return calls us to give everything we have. My prayer is that this would be good news. I feel like this is a pretty standard, maybe even cliche main point in a sermon. You know, Jesus gave it all, you give it to him or whatever. My prayers that the Holy Spirit would come and let it land in a way that it is good news, that it's relief. Let me pray. Well, Father, we come before you, before the text, for your holy scriptures, before our King. We just give this time. May your Holy Spirit would come, soften our hearts, make us curious what you want to do in us in this time, looking at Jesus's teachings here. Do you protect us from reducing this to just info, information, but instead let it be for a transformation? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just do rapid fire context of our where we're, where we're at, because I think this is funny. This is like the, the overall drive-by. First 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says this, 
They arrived in, again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, came to him and asked him a question. By what authority are you doing these things? And then in 12, verse 13, later they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words, and they asked him, and they asked him a question. And then in verse 18, then the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to him with a question. And then verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus, given them a good answer, he asked him a question. So Jesus is in Jerusalem going to the temple where he flipped over tables, drove out money changers, all that stuff. And naturally they start getting, asking him questions and wanting to kill him. And he doesn't, he doesn't hide. He's back there right where he caused all that havoc teaching and All these times, the religious authorities come to him with questions to trap him, to trick him, to debate with him, which is a silly thing to do because he blows all their minds. Look at verse 34. When um, The end of verse 34 says, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. (laughs) So this is the context where Jesus kind of like poked the hornet's nest, flipping over tables, and then they start grilling him And he blows all their minds, and they're like, okay, we're going to stop. We're not going to debate anymore. And so now, verse 35, when Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he he asked them, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? The tables have turned. Now he's asking the questions. He's asking why they would call the Messiah, the, the anointed one that all Jewish people were waiting for, the son of David. And it's a very fascinating question on the surface. It's a tricky question because on, on the surface, I guess it's not fascinating on the surface, only fascinating deeper down. On the surface, it seems like a no-brainer. For the people he's asking this question to, this would have been like the most obvious Sunday school answer, you know, like who died on the cross? Jesus, you know, where like the answer is, is clear. Uh, the, why, does the, why do they call the Messiah the son of David? Uh, because God For Jesus, the crowds, especially the teachers of the law, the Old Testament was the Bible, and they probably had it memorized. And here, Jesus is referring to 2 Samuel 7, where God makes a covenant with King David. It's a fascinating moment in the history of God's people. Let me just read one small part of it. This is God speaking. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, speaking to David, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring. I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. God promises to King David thousands of years before this moment in our text that one of his descendants would be the forever king. And the Jews of this day understood this passage from 2 Samuel to be talking about the Messiah. So this backstory makes Jesus' question tricky because it seems like an open and shut, you know, Sunday school answer. Well, you know, do I have to explain it to you, Jesus? In 2 Samuel 7, God said that, made this promise. But Jesus goes on in verse 36 to expound on this question from another part of the Old Testament, Psalm 110. In verse 36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So Psalm 110 is super fascinating. Uh, It's the psalm that is most frequently quoted and talked about in the New Testament. I remember visiting a church uh, with my in-laws where they're going through Hebrews. They're spending like two years going through the book. If you think I spent a long time at Mark, you you don't even know. Uh, And the the homeboy stopped in the middle of Hebrews and spent like eight weeks just in Psalm 110 (laughs) because the whole order, I'm, I'm in the weeds. I'm sorry. My point is that Psalm 110 is a big deal. Is a, very quoted a lot. Jesus is uh, bringing in background around this whole idea of David's son and the Messiah. And the crux of his question is in the first line where there's some wordplay going on, where the Lord said to my Lord, Psalms are written in Hebrew, and the opening line, the Lord said to my Lord, has two different words for Lord. The first Lord is Yahweh. I am that I am name for God Almighty. And the second Lord is Adonai, which would be king. Yahweh says to my Adonai. So Jesus' question is, if David, who was believed to be the author of Psalm 110, said, the Lord God said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet, then the Messiah is obviously superior to David, not just a descendant, which is how the teachers of the law probably would have thought. It's just like a human descendant of David would be the Messiah. And we see this in Peter's confession. Peter confesses in kind of the common understanding of the day. We believe you're the Messiah. But then what is, what's the next thing he does? He rebukes Jesus. He, he's saying, no, Jesus, you got it wrong. You're wrong. I know you're the Messiah, but you got it wrong. That's a version of the Messiah. The Messiah, version of the Messiah that can get it wrong is what they were thinking would come. Jesus' argument is that the Messiah is not simply an extension of David, but though, yes, the Messiah is in the lineage of David, but that he will surpass David as a son of David. It falls short in capturing the fullness of the Messiah J.R. Edwards says it like this. The quotation from Psalm 110 is used here as it was used later throughout Christian writings, ultimately not as a description of Jesus' purpose and work, but as a description of his transcendent status. For some reason, I I love that phrase. I latched on that. It's transcendent status. And I love that the crowds listen with delight. Like he's probably, I wonder if, you know, he's answering questions that they had for, you know, generations. Like, I know the Hebrew of Psalm 110, like, why is there Yahweh and Adonai? What's going on there? And I can't help but wonder if they're a little bit, you know, kind of begrudgingly put up with the Pharisees. And so they love seeing the Pharisees get schooled. But most importantly, if you think about what Jesus is saying, what's delightful about what Jesus is saying? He's saying that the Messiah you've been waiting for the, the good news of a coming king is even better than you thought. He's not just a human descendant of David, the best king Israel ever had. He's going to be transcendent above and beyond the son of Yahweh. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. He is Adonai, the king, the son of I am that I am. And the crowds are delighted. So we see Jesus' 
authority is nestled in his identity as the king, as the son of God Almighty, as the son of Jehovah Jireh, the God of all sufficiency and fullness. And, and next we see a contrast with how the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious authorities of his day ruled and interacted with people. And I think the contrast can be summed up in John 1, 16, 1, John 1 verse 16. Talking of Jesus, it says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus, as the transcendent son of Yahweh, the truer and better David, rules and reigns from a place of fullness, rooted in his identity as the holy, fully God, son of God. Within the perfect oneness and love within his relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit within the Trinity, that fullness out of which has flowed everything that exists. By contrast, the teachers of the law are leading and using their authority from a place of emptiness. They're, instead of you, their authority flowing from fullness, they're trying to get their authority to flow into their emptiness. Verse 38. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. This is brutal. Jesus is the king, living in perfect union with God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit and that satisfying, steadfast love, he comes as someone. What does Jesus do with his authority? He washes dirty feet. He touches lepers. He spends unhurried time with the outcasts. He receives children. He speaks loving but hard words to rich people, which is hard to do where we see the teachers of the law, when we see in this rebuke, his description of them, that they're coming from this ravenous emptiness, trying to use their authority, their position, their, their, their status to get stuff. Look at the three needs of this passage. I made a grid. Did it show up? It did. I'm working on getting grips up there. So the first one, flowing robes and greetings of respect, and fancy prayers for show. This is approval. They're wanting the approval of people. Wearing things that mark them as different or special, gaining respect, waxing eloquent for show. The human soul, and there's nothing wrong with the need for approval. The human soul cannot survive without approval coming from an external source. They just don't believe, there's a little bit of a myth now that, you know, all I need is me or whatever out there. Uh, it's not true. We need approval, but the question is where? Where do we get the approval from? The fair, tragedy of the Pharisees is that they're using their religious position to get it from people rather than God. Places of honor at synagogues and banquets, this is the need for significance. Again, all humans need a sense of their God-given worth from outside of themselves. And there is no significance greater than a deep experience of God's love for you. He created you. He sustains you. He invites you into that same Trinitarian fullness that Jesus experienced. But the tragedy of the Pharisees is that they settled for fancy chairs on stage at church and that, you know, the table at the front of the fundraising banquets or whatever. 
And lastly, security. They devoured widows' houses, which was kind of an expression back in the day of greed, using religious things to get rich for financial security and preying on people who were particularly vulnerable to that kind of thing. Jesus is blunt here. There is punishment coming for people like this. When we set our lives up to get our God-given needs apart from God, we should prepare to hurt. Or to say it another way in Jesus' terms, prepare to lose our life as we try to find it in these other things. To end up with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Think of the neuroses that come from being a relentless people pleaser. Think of the anxiety that comes as you hoard and try to get your own security through money. It's a life of anxiety, stress, striving, of faking and posturing and pretending, hiding your true self. It's a miserable way to live. I just got to acknowledge, like, where is Jesus saying this? In church, in the temple courts, in the exact place where the people he is critiquing do their work. And and he's not, he's in their home court. Unless we look down on the Pharisees from our lofty towers, I want to just take a moment and invite you to consider Jesus's words here for your own life by giving you just some things to pray about, some possible warning signs that might show areas where you're trying to meet your needs apart from God. Like as a rule of thumb, we should all assume there's parts of our lives, parts of needs that we're trying to meet apart from God. And it's just, that's the ongoing work of repentance, seeing it, turning from it, returning to God. And so these kinds of awareness things are just things to hold before God and see what he might invite you away from. Now, the temptation, before we put the grid up, is to look at the grid and be like, oh, my brother needs to see that. Oh, I wish my sister-in-law would, you know, take a look at this, you know, or like my mother-in-law's, whatever. Uh, don't do that. Those thoughts will probably come, but just put them on at the feet of Jesus. He can take care of your mother-in-law. <laughs> Instead, just ask God what he would show you. Okay, here's the other grid. Here's the next grid. So the warning light uh, with approval would be, you can't say no. You're exhausted, you're frazzled, you can't say, but people ask you to do something and you just don't want them to think bad of, so you say yes. And then, I mean, it's right there in the text. You spend money on looks. Lots of clothes, fancy clothes. I don't know what other ways you spend money on looks. We got an Amazon package this week that we didn't order. and It was like a $150 hair blower or hair dryer or something like that. I don't know what to do with it now. It's addressed to Sylvie. Sylvie, if you're here, we have your hair dryer. Wow. I'm sorry. I had an extra cup of coffee. That was unhelpful. Significance. Some of the warning signs. Are you getting your significance of other places, other places other than God? You can't rest. If you can't, can't take a, can't take a day off, can't do something fun. You were like, have those people where you're like, so what do you like to do for fun? And they just like look at you like a deer in the headlights. Like, what? Fun? I don't know. I haven't had fun since 1979. Uh, and then you see people as projects. Where people aren't no longer people to just know or be known by. They're people to, like, 
and I'm speaking to myself here, you know, this is like one of the biggest temptations in pastor life where like instead of just being with people, you're like, how can I help you grow? How can I move you down the road? How can I help you become a leader of the church? It's awful, but it's just it's a temptation. Where people's struggles become, you know, on you because you need them to advance or get better so you can feel important about yourself. And security is can't give money, can't stop earning money. You could retire once or twice over, but you can't stop. Or you, you can't give money. Like you might send in your tithe or whatever, but that's because you don't really notice it. So take it or leave it. Morning lights for you to go and sit with God and see if he'd have any inv- invitations to you in that. My goal is not to make you feel guilty, but just to join Jesus in pointing out the warning. The warnings that I sat with as a teacher of the law to some degree all week long, feeling super uncomfortable. Uh, People who could use authority, privilege, and money to meet God-given needs apart from God. Next, we have Jesus' final moment of public teaching ministry. From here on out, Jesus is just kind of with his disciples. This is the last kind of public thing he says. It's very profound if you think about it. This is the last thing Mark wanted to put in. He sets the religious pretense of the scribes against the humble faith of a widow. So the scribes and teachers of the law are devouring widows' houses. And here we have a widow earnestly with childlike trust, giving all she had to live on. Now to set the scene, the way offering happen where people gave money in the temple back in the day would to give them in these giving stations that were set like metal they were shaped like ram's horns um but they're made out of metal and people you know typically gave coins and so there, there's like eight or nine i think in historians say in the temple courts where you could give for very to various things and so the you drop the coins in there and if you're dropping a lot it'd be loud making it rain you know boom you know the jangle would spread over the temple courts it was a kind of a showy showy thing but it was public uh, which is kind of intense and so jesus is doing some people watching looking at the money box and seeing how people give and so he's seeing you know the the loud rattle of all these rich people making it rain and then it's just two little tinkles two maybe it didn't even make a sound two little coins that make up one penny so And Jesus is talking about money again. Uh, He's talking about more than money, but he's not talking about less than money. I always want to bring that up. Uh, It's easy to dive into the depth of this and kind of miss what he's saying about actually money. We see Jesus making conclusions. This is huge. We see Jesus making conclusions about people's relationship with God based on how they steward their money. It's not to say God loves you more or less based on how much you give. That's not, that's not the angle of the relationship. But the person's experience of God's love and response to God's love seems to be connected to their relationship with money. Jesus explains it pretty clearly that the showy, rich people are trying to make it rain to get approval and they're giving a large amount, but it doesn't even really touch them. They have enough. They're good on their own. They don't need God to provide for them. And so money and giving at the temple is just another way to get approval. 
So while it could be a blessing, a gift to give large amounts of money, we had a donor come and give a, a decent chunk of change to LifeWise, which was encouraging. And some of you do that here in our church family. Uh, Over the years, some large gifts have come in. I don't know who you are. I don't know. For the record, I try to avoid any info about who gives what. Uh, But I do know some, some heavy hitters here, and I'm grateful for you. But Jesus is talking about something different than the amounts. He's saying that what God is looking for is childlike trust. People who would live in such a way... That life like only works or makes sense if God is, makes good on his promises to take care of us. That God is actually our loving father who has promised to provide what we need. This is a tricky topic, sensitive topic. Uh, you probably have lots of practical giving questions flooding your mind right now, which you know we sadly don't have time to unpack. But I just don't want us to miss what King Jesus is teaching us right here. So what pleases God, what God is looking for, is a heart that trusts in him, that reveres him more than it reveres money and the security and comfort it can provide. We know, uh, historically, the teachers of the law probably would have been pretty well off. We also know they're very strict about tithing, uh, tithing very, you know, nitpicky to the to the law. But here we see Jesus elevating a woman who would have been invisible, like a non-factor, someone who would have been tolerated uh, or maybe just blown off, saying that she has put in more. She is, to use Jesus's term from chapter 10, receiving the kingdom like a child, receiving life with God under his rule like a child, trusting her father to provide. And this is what Jesus calls you and I to do this kind of trust. I don't know what it looks like for you. I'm not trying to prescribe anything specific. But the question is, what can we do with our lives, including our money, to live in this childlike trust of who God is? And I fully acknowledge the awkwardness of this moment. I mean, the scathing rebuke of people in my line of work we just read, and now I'm talking about money. So, you know, you can have full permission to be offended or blow me off. Uh, but I, I just want to be faithful to what I think Jesus is showing us here. Uh, the first thing is if you're here today and you're giving to the church, you're giving until it hurts, and you're wondering, does God see me? Does God care? Does this even matter? This is such a tiny amount, and it affects my life so much. I pray that you would behold the God of the universe seeing you. Drop your envelope in, set up your online giving, seeing that deduction every two weeks out of your paycheck, and he's delighted in you. He's delighted in your trust. He's pleased that you would trust him to take care of your needs in whatever gap happens because you give. Several folks I've been hanging out with uh, next door in the laurels have been giving me their, their little envelopes with their tithe. Uh, you know, they don't have any jobs, very little extra spending money above basic living, and they, they want to worship God with what they have. It's so beautiful. And so I just got to imagine, there's some of us here today, maybe some of us who are you know new to the United States, trying to set up a new life here, trying to find a job, or giving sacrificially, 
giving with uncertainty, not knowing how it's all going to work out. And I just hope you see your savior, see your savior looking at you, savoring your trust in him. But there's probably some of us here who aren't giving at all or are giving God our chump change. We would never let the way we worship God with our money affect our lifestyle or say no to something that we want or something that we want to do. And if that's you, God is inviting you to put him to the test, to taste and see that he is good, that he's better than whatever money can bring to you. To summarize, as long as money is our means of pursuing satisfaction, God cannot be. And so giving, giving sacrificially until it affects us, doesn't make sense as an invitation to God to be the satisfaction that he, he said he would be for us. And so I, I, I'm curious, what is the Holy Spirit bringing to mind right now? What might he be calling you to give up, to sacrifice? Maybe for some of us, it's to work less, to free up time for other things other than paid work. Maybe sell a car or rein in eating out and the special treats that we want to drive through and grab. I realize I'm stepping on toes here. So let's land the plane in the question, how could Jesus invite us to this? How could he call us to this? Why would Jesus, who loves us, put this scary, painful invitation before us? Well, this teaching about a widow, this last public teaching moment, shows us the kind of response to Jesus' authority, his servant-hearted authority, and it points us to Jesus, the foundation of Jesus' authority. His death, betrayal, crucifixion. This woman is pointing us to Jesus. She gave all that she had to live on. Jesus gave his very life for us. He gives his life for you and me to make a way back into the fullness of that relationship with our Father, where we can trust him as our Father, where all, all, all that the Father has belongs to us. Jesus knows that's how people flourish. That's how humans flourish, walking in the presence of God as our Father in the cool of the evening, running to our Father with our needs and our fears. We all, like the teachers of the law, myself very much included, have tried to meet our needs apart from God lived like orphans where you don't have a father to trust and so we got to scrap and scrimp and save and scheme and our own versions of flowing robes and showy prayers and schemes to get money and we are under punishment we experience the anxiety the loneliness the depression the addictions the one thing they say about addictions is you can never get enough of something that almost works We, we try to satisfy these needs with things that almost work, but they don't. Only God can do that. So Jesus and our journey through Mark is about to go to the cross to lay down his life for me and for you. And he invites us to lay down our lives for him as his apprentices so that we might find them. We might find satisfaction for our souls and live life to the full as beloved children. Let me pray. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. 
You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K A R L roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Carl Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.